0: Uh, Welcome to Ladywood. Two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie, that's me, uh, discuss the show through a feminist lens. My name is Sita Sean. I am a stand-up comedian and writer in Los Angeles. I'm Brandy Sperry, also a writer here in LA.
1: My name is Lynn Sternberger and I'm a TV writer out in Los Angeles. Very confident.
0: I love it. (laughs) So today we'll be discussing the third episode of the third season, True Colors, written by Regina Corrado and Ted Mann and directed by Greg Feinberg. So this episode first aired June 25th uh, in 2006. The stagecoach brings Hearst's loyal cook, Aunt Lou, theater promoter, Jack Langrish, an old friend of surgeons and returning and much Westernized, Mr. Wu. Hearst shows that he means business during a separate dealing with Alma, Bullock, and Tolliver as more unionized minors are murdered by agents of Hearst. He just comes in and he's just like, I'm going to murder these
1: people you, down with the union. It's very like appropriate that, We're, like, watching a unionizing storyline while all of the Hollywood writers are basically ditching their agents because of conflicts of interest. And it's, like, union strong, except we're a guild. But guild strong!
2: (laughs) Yeah. And hopefully no one's going to cut off your legs.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I should hope that I don't get thrown up against the wall and have my legs
0: chopped off. That sounded horrible. Can you imagine if Ari Emanuel just, like, came into a writer's room and just shot people? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
2: I mean, it's probably a conversation that has happened
1: let's hope it doesn't come to this
2: well and it's not going to come to this with uh with hearse either because seth is putting
1: him on notice yeah talk about an unintimidating threat he was like oh and i'm goodness. putting you back on notice it was very like <laughs> boo boo i'm
0: rubber you're glue you're on notice no you're on notice what is seth thinking here i don't Understand. Everyone in town is terrified of George Hearst, and Seth is like, "Well, I'm gonna put him on notice." Me and Charlie Utter, like, he doesn't have an army, the way I'm assuming that like Hearst has like a lot of men to back up whatever threats he's like pushing out I in Deadwood, right?
1: Think logically, necessarily. He is all about like honor and the civil code, and this is you know, this goes against humanity. He's just murdering men. And I don't think he cares how much power he has behind him. Like, when he was gonna murder Al in the thoroughfare, he didn't arrange to have the guns backing him up. He was like, I'm just gonna murder this guy. I'm just gonna take him on.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I think he's getting a little fed up. Seth is with his own impotence on this issue. And certainly we have Al sort of contemplating his own lack of a plan or a sort of desire to strike back at Hearst in this episode. So I think it's slightly treading water a little about like what bigger moves they might take, but it does seem that Seth didn't know about the killings that took place in the gem, the sort of let's call it even killings mm-hmm. from a couple episodes ago. So if he wasn't aware of that, he might think he had more cards to play than he actually did. But as Hearst points out, it's like, you want to investigate this? Well, I'll investigate your friends and we'll see who wins because it's not going to be you. I
1: thought Charlie almost walked in on those killings, didn't he? He did. Yeah, he walked in and walked out.
2: Seth's face looked like this was the first time he was hearing this information to me when Hearst was telling him that.
1: I agree that's how they're playing it, and I think that it is a logic issue, but maybe, you know.
2: It's a logic issue, too, because I know that two guys were killed, and yet they keep referring to one body that's in Woo's freezer or whatever, and I'm just like, uh, you know, was the script coordinator or someone, like, absent this week? Because <laughs> there's some stuff that could have been called out as potential continuity errors.
1: Yeah. um, All of this kind of comes to a head sort of later in the episode, but yeah, Bullock is riled... Also, Cy Tolliver, I I guess he's now going to be a dog when Hearst calls for him. We're really pulling to keep Cy in the narrative,
2: huh? I, I think we've made ourselves yeah. clear
1: on how we feel about this. But that
2: scene where Cy and Hearst talk is pretty entertaining because Hurst just lays into him, calls him a liar, does all this stuff. And then he's like, and so you
1: do, do you want to come work for me? <laughs> I love a bullshitting liar. Indeed. I mean, I don't know what he really needs him for. I guess as like a stand in a la Walcott, but but it doesn't seem like Cy has any sort of the finesse that Walcott did in dealing with unions or I don't know, negotiations of any sort. So I, it remains to be seen what his job will be. Yeah.
2: In this episode we don't really get the full scope of Hearst's plans in a post Walcott world yet. And we're three episodes into the season and we're still kind of like, well, what's this guy doing other than trying to buy Alma's claim, which also goes very badly in this episode.
0: Yeah, I mean, what is Psy going to do other than release his dope heads? Like, those those are (laughs) so far the only, like, two people that he has to act for him. Just Leon and Con Stapleton, both of which are useless. Like, I don't get it. And it's not like
1: anybody in Deadwood actually trusts Psy. Like, if he set, comes into an argument and says, oh, I, I really think this is the sensible thing to do, side with this outsider, Hearst, they're all going to know. Psy's a scheming dog. We don't, we don't get much further than, Hurst is a bulldozer of a man who is not intimidated by the law, his competition, or Psy. Mm. Well, let's talk
2: about his confrontation with Alma and everything that leads up to it. I think Ellsworth loses a few feminist points in this episode.
0: <laughs> I think uh, I think this this uh, whole argument with Alma was like the most interesting thing about the entire episode. Because like, I think it's before she goes to, um, she has the conversation with Ellsworth that she's at Doc Cochran's, right? Am I correct? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, she sees Doc but, first and then at Ellsworth.
0: Yeah. So she's with the doctor and she seems like in pretty high spirits for, you know, just kind of having had Seth's abortion, right? That's kind of the timeline <laughs> we're on. It's maybe, yes. 10 days after Seth's abortion, she's like, I'm riding high and like about to negotiate with George Hurst, And that makes Doc a little bit suspicious about her current state of mind. And then when she goes to Ellsworth,
1: this to like have the this the opposite argument? of
0: postpartum depression? What is he trying to diagnose her with? She seems a little manic. Like, she's a little all over the place. I think that might be it. He might be diagnosing her with some type of, like, bipolar or some sort of mood disorder, which I'm sure back then they didn't really have a great handle on. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she's having that uh, conversation with Ellsworth, I really liked that argument just because I don't think we've seen Ellsworth, like, really upset by anything oh. except um, when it comes to george hurst and then of course that comes out again in the actual confrontation with uh george hurst and alma and ellsworth in the room Then then ellsworth just like freaking loses it and yes. like in
2: front of me it's quite the shocking team. because i I, yeah. I was trying to think is there have we ever seen a moment of him actually losing control in any real fashion other than when he's confronted with this guy slightly when he first met Walcott, which is essentially, you know, a smaller version of the same thing where he just is mm-hmm. so overcome with his hatred and contempt for the way they conduct themselves that he cannot help himself.
1: We didn't see him like spitting mad, though, with Walcott. No, it But was it was, was definitely seething. it was more seething. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. This was like, it really felt like he couldn't hold back.
1: So Alma wants to make an offer, or she wants to start a negotiation to sell a part of her claim. Ellsworth doesn't want her to goes with her, this fallout, and then she makes the offer. And what do we think of Hearst's reaction? He's terrifying.
2: I mean, she's, she frustrates me a lot here because she seems to be trying to like use some feminine wiles on him. Like she's speaking in a very sort of soft, flirty voice. Mm-hmm. She's kind of looking at him up through eyelashes. It's just not the way to communicate with this man. And he's absolutely terrifying once he gets up in her face.
1: So basically, he feels emasculated. He is not a capon, whatever. I mean, I can guess what it is. I had to Google it. It's a castrated male chicken. <laughs> it is a cockless cock. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm surprised that they held back on using that actual word. You know, they can use cocksucker in every
0: other particular derivation. But um I mean cock is pretty much candy to Deadwood writers. I'm I'm shocked as well, Lynn. <laughs> yeah, capon. They went with
1: capon. That's classy. It sounds like isn't it a thing that you could also like eat on the side? Like it's like a little side garnish, a capon. <laughs> that corny Sean, I think, is what you're thinking of. <laughs>
0: Oh, okay, okay. Do you take me for a (laughs) cornichon? Do you take me for a tiny pickle? (laughs)
2: Yeah, that that
1: one kind of works too, actually. I mean, I guess the gist of her offer was she wants to maintain the controlling stake, 51%. And Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is the thing that upsets him.
2: She also asks for 5% of his holdings in these hills and access through them in exchange. So... I, but I do think it's the he even calls out it's being a minority partnership. He yes. doesn't have the the temperament for it or whatever is the word that he uses. But uh, it's it's a bit of an overreaction on his part, I would say.
1: Yeah. And then later he is sort of confessing. I forget who he's talking to. And he basically. Like, oh, to
0: sigh, Isn't it mm-hmm. sigh? Yeah, it's to He
1: says, I nearly raped her. Did
0: they watch that? I caught it. I thought it was terrifying. I was like, "Oh my god!" Like he he basically said he was going to kill Bullock and rape um, Mrs. Ellsworth.
2: Yeah, I think in the actual scene where he confronts her, perhaps it doesn't spell that out. He seems kind of capable of anything, though. So I think the way that it's structured, when he mentions that later, and you think back on the moment, you're like, "Oh my god!"
1: Yeah, I thought he would kill her. Um, Yeah, but the specificity of rape is such a, it was really shocking and I'm kind of surprised they took it there, but I'm glad they did because of it's an assertion of control. Right. And that's exactly what his character is.
2: That's exactly what I thought too. I was like, they're really understanding that that action would have been about power and Mm -hmm. about him, as he says, just sort of acting in a manner to get power back in any different, in any sort of situation. No matter whether later it's not going to have go go well for him or get him what he actually wants,
0: because he views almost offer as a, essentially an insult mm-hmm. and like uh, basically a, a taking away of his power. And the way that like the most base way you can assert power back over a woman who has something that you want is through rape. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, nominate this for least feminist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Least feminist. And then the conversation um, between Ellsworth and Alma right after her like near rape, I guess, with Hearst is also like that to me actually felt like a conversation between like a real married couple, I think. Alma almost doesn't realize what she's doing to Ellsworth by telling him the story. That's kind of like like I felt like she was really riling him up, mm-hmm. and he was about to go do something really stupid. <laughs> so, but at the same time, I kind of felt like she had these great feminist uh, things to say, which is like, why would I have deserved it? And I was totally on board with that. Totally. I was like,
1: why did she deserve it? Completely. <laughs> so <she> yeah. Just, <laughs> it's a legitimate <laughs> she fight that these two are having, right? Like they yeah. both have a very valid perspective, and. I I love a fight like this because it's really like, well, I just want to take care of you, you idiot. Yeah. That's my favorite tone for a fight. <laughs> it's
2: a it's a really well written scene because as much as I sort of am like, no Ellsworth, don't say these like you know problematic things, uh, whatever. He's still thinking of himself as a husband in the eighteen mm-hmm. seventies who should have some measure of being able to protect his woman, right? And both of them say mean things that are coming from a real place of where they're standing in the situation, in their emotions, and all of that. It's it's a great scene.
1: I quickly want to revisit, because we had a conversation about it in a previous episode, if they would ever bone. <laughs> and I know that there are it's contentious between them in this episode, but I do think... That this episode further convinced me that they could potentially, at some point, bone. Yeah, there's a spark of
2: passion in there in the anger a little bit, right? Like, not the same kind of passion as she has with Seth, but... They're
1: engaging with each other, and intellectually, they're engaged. Like, it's a real relationship. Nobody's checked out.
2: Maybe that's even better for the long run, because that's what Alma wants, right? We hear that from her conversation with the doc earlier. She wants to be treated as a full normal person and Ellsworth does that for her and when she gets really angry at him in this episode it's when he takes it too far being like I forbid you right yeah uh, right but that's not his normal stance that's an extreme for him because of how just completely out of his mind he is over this particular situation yeah it they have a, a deep thing going on on an intellectual level for sure
1: and almost also having a tiff with Doc Cochrane in this because he's implying that maybe she's back on laudanum and she isn't and Trixie says she probably isn't and it remains to be seen what's actually going on with Alma besides you know empowerment
2: I don't even think the doc really did imply that she was back on laudanum. I think she was really reading into just him Mm. asking like to me it was almost like when your doc's like and did you take your full course of antibiotics like I told you to (laughs)
1: And you get defensive and you're like, and you're like of course I did!
0: <laughs> you're like, no, I didn't sleep with three different guys. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, and our side character is Trixie. At the beginning of the episode, um, it opens on Trixie sort of relaying everything to Al and Al sort of having a disinterested stance on everything. And then Trixie kind of uh, trying to maneuver a little bit around and getting people to realize. I mean, Trixie's role in Deadwood almost always seems to be like, hey, here's what's going on. Why aren't you guys paying attention? Especially
1: in this episode when Al is um, licking his wounds, I guess, is what we're, you know, he's mm-hmm. acting reclusive because he's missing a finger. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't know what the healing process for that is like, but I can't imagine it's pretty. So we see a little bit of Trixie. We also meet Aunt Lou. It's always interesting when a new female character comes to town. Let's talk about
2: how they handle this, because I definitely remember thinking the first time through and this time, like if this character isn't putting on an act for hers right now, if you're going to, yeah. you know, give me this and say that uh, any human woman would actually have acted yeah. in this manner you and meant it. You don't
1: see mammy acting like mammy and and yeah. that that's not there's no progressiveness in that. That's, there's no reality in it either.
2: Right. So of course there's a reveal at the end that she's actually she can't stand this guy. She makes fun of him. She smokes a cigar and plays mahjong with the Chinese workers, which is funny and she seems to have adopted Richardson as a sort of pet. Which is also funny, but I I don't know that it's particularly a subtle uh, exploration of what a woman in sort of in Hearst's clutches would actually feel like because she I doubt she has an option to quit this job, right? If
0: Hearst is that attached to her, she goes where he wants her. Right. And that's fucked up. I think Aunt Lou is, like, our character where Hearst confesses, like, his sins, too. I think that's, like, what her role is is in the story because, like, when he's eating peach cobbler at the end, first of all, she never, like... When she looks at him, she's always really nervous. Like that's that's pretty decent acting, I think, mm-hmm. on the on the mm-hmm. actress's part. She never seems really at, at ease with hearse, even with all the forced like familiarity. Like, let me get your boots off. How'd you let these boots get so dirty? It still always feels a little theatrical. Yeah, it's an act then, for
1: sure. It's like it's a definitely- caretaker role
0: hmm And then when Hearst says that thing that was so weird to me, he says um he has like an, an Indian name uh called Boy Who Speaks to Earth. Boy the Earth talks to. Oh yeah. yeah, Boy the Earth talks to. Right. And that's all about how Hearst can't really relate to people. Like he can't talk to any humans basically he can only talk to black people and to white people who are his dogs that's mm-hmm. that's his explanation and that and i don't think that can com- that sort of confession would have gone to any other character other than aunt Lou.
1: yeah and i the the mahjong scene i'm want to give credit where it's due like i'm very glad that brandy as you like point yeah. out they don't keep that from us they do want to like Show us, oh, she. There's more. There's more underneath the surface than the image she's presenting to the outside world. But the fact that she's like speaking her mind to these people who I think were meant. It's implied that they wouldn't understand her because they're mm-hmm. speaking Chinese and she's speaking English. It's another way of getting sort of her internal thoughts or like her real personality without actually giving her a confidant or an equal. It's like Al in the head, you know. Mm-hmm. It can't. It can't talk yeah. back. It can't weigh in, and it can't. Sell you out, and right. I just think it's unfortunate that that is a female person of color who is being put into
0: this kind of
1: equalist role again.
0: I, I just there's like to your point, like there's no one for her to talk to. There's no. zero other her in town.
2: Well, Al doesn't have to talk to, he- to the head anymore now because he has Jack langriche
1: I thought this was delightful. Um, like in a kind of dark episode, I thought it was fun.
2: Of course, it's fun to watch Brian Cox and and Ian McShane act together. I am mixed on the actors arriving in Deadwood, and I feel that it's because the tone of the show is already so theatrical that adding actual actors into it, now I feel like the balance (laughs) is upset. You think it's like a hat on a hat? Yeah, or like these characters, the way they like flounce around and it's supposed to be like, oh, they're
1: they're actors or theaters. And I'm like, is this that different from the way E B acts every day? No. <laughs> like- the answer is no. Um, I do not recall, but if E B does not end up like auditioning to be a part of <laughs> there, it would be so upsetting. I don't think he does. <laughs> like obviously, I don't think he does. But it's probably his missed calling. Um, I actually liked I I like it. I don't mind it. It definitely lightens the tone overall, especially because Al seems at ease with this guy.
0: Yeah, it made me really curious about Al's past with John Langrish. It was like, who was Al to John and vice versa? Like, was was Al in a theater company? Was he like shoe oh polishing God. for the patrons? <laughs> Is that how he learned to, to wheel and deal and like learn about motivations and manipulations through the theater?
2: <laughs> he claims that he never goes to a play. So you didn't go to the play because you were in the play? Is that what it was? Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, it's interesting to see him with someone who is, you know, not one of his henchmen, not Trixie, not Dolly, someone who's a little more of an equal, not an antagonist like Seth where mm-hmm. he is
1: just, you know, he gives his buddy a tour of the town. It's funny. And speaking of like theatricality in Deadwood, to your point, Brandy Blazanov and Merrick are basically doing the stand-up routine
0: Apropos
1: Ew. of nothing, where <laughs> blazanov is testing this I, or describing some sort of, I think it's a recording device, or it could be like... I think it was a telegraph that could give and
2: receive messages at the same time or something.
1: Okay, and he's doing it by, like, they're imitating different tones of voice, and then he caps off the scene by mentioning, I met a girl in Chicago!
2: Yeah, I yeah. can't
1: decide if they're more like Abbott and Costello or like Rosencrantz
2: and Guildenstern, like a mashup of the two i didn't even notice that blazanov was gone so
1: no neither did i i didn't no know one that. did but we
2: did notice that Wu was gone and he comes back wearing a san francisco cocksucker suit so he's full in the game now he's got a page boy haircut too well he cut off his ponytail at the end of last season okay. remember
1: I think he needs a good conditioning treatment personally, but I don't mind the cut. When did they invent VO5 hot oil? (laughs) (laughs) Not soon enough (laughs) is the answer. But he was in San Francisco and he was, in fact, collecting or or like lining up employees for Hearst's operation. They're coming in 10 days and he's learned some additional English. 10 days. Great. That's what he says. or That's what we're meant to believe. I'm worried about Wu as as uh, as this goes forward. Well, because he was like an honorable character, and now he's doing the bidding of the guy who's like murdering union workers. Yeah, I mean that can't that can't go well, right? Probably not. But I mean, a Steadwood, nothing really like goes well. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. Speaking of which, Doc Cochran. Very quickly, we should mention he's coughing up disgusting shit, and he's probably going to die.
2: It's really gross.
1: I was yeah. like, is a whole ass, like, alien going to come out of this guy right now? <laughs> it was like the yeah. equivalent of if you guys saw that guy who had, like, a blood clot in the shape of his, like, his bronchial tubes <laughs> or whatever. That was awful. Awesome. <laughs> the deadwood equivalent of that. <laughs> it
2: was gross. I mean, you just know it's never good when someone starts coughing. Ever. On any TV show or movie. Ever. And so I'm just like I'm not. I, the doc can't die. I just immediately go to death when coughing starts. So
1: I mean, I'm so I'm so angry that people sick and die, and it's logical. But like Cy gets knifed in the gut, and he's fine. He's bouncing around now. Like <sighs> if I were God, this would be a lot better.
2: <laughs> I definitely wouldn't arrange things this way if I were God.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm mad that Jane is not in this episode. That was one of my other thoughts. I miss her. I miss Jewel. Where are they? I feel like overall
2: for this rewatch, one of my most surprising things that my memory did was just remember Jane being a much bigger character.
1: Yes, agreed.
2: And I forgot that she would disappear for episodes at a time. Like I, I really thought that she was like the third lead below
1: <laughs> Ian McShane and Timothy Olyphant. Me too. Oh, and uh, I, I overall felt the episode was like thin for the lady characters. Although, of course, we got Mama Lou, and that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I did like when Jack Langrish was walking past the and and kind of trying. We don't know exactly what he's doing yet, but he kind of locks eyes with Joni, and she thinks he's there to buy some pussy or, or to inquire. <laughs> and she says, I'm watering these kids' as vegetables. We don't do the other anymore. I thought that was fucking hilarious.
2: Yeah, shoot him off. And then by the end of the episode, we're, we're pretty well implied that Jack
1: doesn't go for women anyway. So. Yeah. But apparently Blazanov does, which was <laughs> shocking to me. So <laughs> Get on
2: with your bad self, Blaz. Any other standout moments, little things?
1: I guess that's a no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, we'll see on the next episode whether the doc gets worse, what's going on with these actors, and whether Al and company are ever going to make a real move back against Hearst. Until then, you can find us on Twitter at LadywoodCast. You can find me at WeBrandy O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I.
1: I'm at Lynn Sternberger.
0: I'm at Slobear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And thank you for listening.
2: by someone who's taking care of me. I don't even care for me. I
0: just care about